second grade to be dismissed to Children's Church today. And it's my uh, privilege today to present a, a guest speaker to you. I was on vacation all this week, so I'm here physically, but that's about it. So someone else needs to be preaching so that it'll be coherent. And uh, th- this is uh, Mark Jennings. And how long have you been a member of the church here now, Mark? About two years? Uh, almost, almost three. Almost three years. Yeah. This is Mark, and uh, this is his wife, uh, Kim. Stand up, Kim. <laughs> I know. She's like, I'm going to kill you for that. This is Kim. Hi. This is Kim. And uh, they have a son, Avery, who's uh, almost two years. Yeah, 18 months. 18 months, and another one on the way. And uh, some of you have heard Mark teach in our Sunday school classes and have been, real, been really blessed by his teaching. And he's a student at Gordon Conwell Seminary, wants to go on and do Ph.D. work and teach Bible at a uh, university, college somewhere. And, uh, and I'd, interestingly, I, I think you've said it, a, not a Christian college. That's right. A secular college so that you can be uh, an evangelical in a secular college teaching Bible to people who, who don't know the Lord. So, That's right. Uh, he's really a missionary, kind of a missionary to the elite, to the, the ivory tower types. And uh, that's really cool, man. So, and besides that, Mark's one of my best friends. This is so, very good. I'm excited to hear you. Thanks. The last uh, thing my wife said to me before we got here, she said, don't introduce me, don't make me stand up, don't draw any attention to me whatsoever. So I, I did not ask him to do that. Well, as we prepare to receive uh, what the Lord has for us in his word today, let us go in prayer. Our Father, our God, today is a wonderful day. Today is a day where you have allowed us to exist in your creation and to glorify you. It is a wonderful day, Lord. Today is a day where you have brought these hearts here together to worship you and to love each other. Lord, today is a wonderful day, for today the invitation to believe in you is still out there. Oh, Father, today is a wonderful day, for it brings us one day closer to that great day when you will come again in your glory. And, Father, today is a wonderful day, for we are able to open up your word to see what you will reveal to us and that you will illuminate in our hearts. This is the day that you have made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. It is in your name I pray. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working through Isaiah. Jeremy has been leading us through this series, and it's been an incredible illuminating study to look at what Isaiah has to say about God's holiness and God's purity, and as well as God's love and God's mercy. And we're going to continue that study today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 25, 6-8. If you're using a pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 698. If you're not using a pew Bible, I have no idea what page number you'll find it on. But I I recommend you start by finding Isaiah, then 25, and then verse 6. If you go another way, you'll have a lot of trouble. We're hands-on here at South Shore Baptist. Isaiah 25 starting with verse 6 through verse 8. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. Amen. When Jeremy first approached me about speaking today, he gave me an option. He said, you can either preach the text that's due for that week on Isaiah or preach one of your own. And I told him I'd get back to him. And I read the text and I prayed about the text and I meditated on it and sought guidance on it. And I called Jeremy back and he said, well, what is it? Do you want to do a different text or this one? My response was simple. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? Do you think I would miss the opportunity to preach about a banquet to a bunch of Baptists? I mean, that's like feeding red meat to the delegates, right? I mean, it's, I might as well preach about the depravity of all things related to the New York Yankees. I mean, this is, this is it's a given I'm going to do this. And we like to, we like to eat. We like to eat together as Baptists. And, we, our culture is the same way. I mean, we recognize significant moments by eating. Let me think of the holidays. Can you imagine a Thanksgiving without a big turkey dinner? Or Christmas without ham or goose? I don't know if anyone eats goose anymore, but I think that's traditional. Easter, the same way. Fourth of July, we cook out, we picnic. Labor Day, we just got done talking about Labor Day picnic. Arbor Day. All right, not every holiday do we celebrate with a meal. I don't know, maybe lima beans on Arbor, Arbor Day, I don't know. But you see, we celebrate huge moments you know, during the year by sharing a meal together. And we do that on a small level as well. Family reunions. I mean, would you ever travel all the way to Oklahoma for a family reunion to fast for two days with your family? No, it's, it's inconceivable. Or rehearsal dinners, weddings, funerals. We eat as a people, as a culture, we eat together. And obviously this isn't just limited to our own time. The ancient Israelites as well celebrated significant moments by eating. The Passover, an obvious example. There are other festivals that they would, uh, were commanded actually to share regarding the harvest. But not just annual events, significant punctiliar moments in Israel's history would be celebrated. We're told that David, in 2 Samuel 6, that David, upon the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, led the whole house of Israel in a party, in a festival, in a banquet, in a celebration. Now this is something only the king could do, right? We, we, can, we can have a big party and invite the church, or the family, or the in-laws. You know, I mean, we, we do that. But the king could have all the people. Solomon, his son, likewise. In 1 Kings, Kings 8, Solomon, upon dedicating the temple, led the entire country in a feast for eight days. I mean, eight days of banqueting, of celebrating. I mean, this is what a king could do. And I think it's with that in mind that we approach this text. So I think this is the context. But we realize we are talking more than just a king throwing a party. 
We're told in verse 6 that on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. The Lord is throwing this party. And it's not just for one nation, right? It's for all peoples. The glory of God is not sequestered in one country. And this banquet, we're given a description, is going to be an amazing banquet with the finest of foods. It's almost reading like a children's birthday invitation, is it not? Who's throwing the party? The Lord. When is it? It's in the future. Who's invited? All peoples. What's going to be served? The finest of foods. The only thing left is why. Why the party? Why the banquet? And this is where we get in verse 7. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is a victory party. It's very common in the ancient world and even in the modern world that when there was a huge victorious battle, you celebrated it. But here it's not the Philistines, it's not the Canaanites, it's not the, it's the Babylonians, it's not the Romans, it's not any of these armies that's being defeated. It's death that's being defeated. And Isaiah describes death, I think, very interestingly. He describes it as a disgrace, does he not? A disgrace of his people. Now, we're not talking about dying with honor here. We're not talking about dying with dignity. We're talking about death itself is a disgrace. Because death itself, when we die, we are declaring to all of creation, we are confirming that we are sinners. We are affirming that we have sinned against our God. And that is a mark of disgrace. It started with Adam and Eve, did it not? They were told that on the day they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will die. They had one law. Just one law. Eve was tempted, disobeyed, Adam transgressed. And we read a few chapters on at the end of their life, guess what happens? They die. Adam and Eve die. Declaring they had truly sinned. And the story of Genesis continues to unfold that way. It's a story of beginnings, yes, but it's also a story of endings. Every person dies, declaring they are sinners to their shame. And this continues on through today. As I was preparing for this lesson and I was watching the news, it, it struck me last week, the first nine stories, the first nine stories were as follows. A man died on a commuter rail accident. A boy in New Hampshire was killed by a bear. A boy in Roxbury was shot randomly. Three people died of a complicated surgery. A woman in Utah was murdered. Threat of terrorism in the world. Soldiers in the Persian Gulf are being killed. Uh, legislation to keep what happened in that Rhode Island nightclub tragedy from happening again. And the judicial process for the Staten Island ferry captain who was high at the wheel that killed 11 people. First nine stories were about death in one day's news. It's not a week's summary, not a month's summary, not a year's summary. One day's news. 
first nine stories. And it is to our shame. And this mark of disgrace that covers all peoples, we are powerless to remove. We can do nothing about that. And we, we may try. We may try like Ted Williams tried, right? Where he, he, he died and he's now frozen, hoping that science may bring him back. We may try. But Scripture is clear. If you sin, you will die. And that's a mark of disgrace. Death is also described as a shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. As I thought about a shroud and a sheet, its function, its most base function, is to separate, is it not? It separates one thing from another. And I believe this is how we think of death. I believe this is why a soldier spouse has unrestful sleep in fear she may never see her loved one or his loved one again. I think this is why a mother and a father of a teenager can't go to bed at night until they hear their son or daughter come home lest they get that call that they dread. I believe this is why we mourn. Because death is a sheet, is a shroud that separates us from our loved one. And we hate it. And it doesn't seem right. And it shouldn't seem right because we may talk about death being this natural cycle, but it is not what was intended. This separation was not intended. But a good friend of mine from college, I'm real close with his family, his wife and my wife were college roommates. He has a seven-year-old nephew named Carter. Two years ago, Carter was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer called Ewing sarcoma in his leg. Four rounds of chemotherapy didn't take, and they had to amputate. So here's this real active, beautiful boy lost his leg. And as his procedure, there was another ten rounds of chemo. So after 14 rounds of chemotherapy, after a leg amputation, this family began to get on with the rest of their lives. But as, as is so tragically the case, they weren't allowed to. Last Christmas, young Carter, seven years old, began talking of pains in his head. And fevers came back. And they went to the doctor, and it was as they feared. The cancer had returned. But not just to his leg. It was on his skull, it was on his spine, he had tumors between his nose and his eye, and it was in his bone marrow. I mean, we're talking a death sentence by all accounts. And his mother, my friend's sister-in-law, keeps this journal online about her experiences, and it's heartbreaking to read. She talks about how terrifying it must be for young Carter to be trapped in a body not working the way God intended. She talks of how Carter doesn't remember what it was like to feel well. But of course, surrounding all these entries is the specter of death. And a young boy who should be feeling indestructible knows he'll likely die. They fight on, they don't want to die. They're praying for miracles, of course, but it's there. And that a mother should be separated from her son 
The, the, the one union that should never be separated. It's horrible. And I can tell you theologically why death exists. I can tell you theologically why cancer exists. Theologically why sickness is there. But why a seven-year-old boy? I don't know. But I know I hate it. As a young father, the son of 18 months old, and another one on the way, the idea of, of walking this earth separated from them almost unbearable. And this is why we mourn. But just as we cannot take away this disgrace of our death, we cannot take away the separation either. We try. We try seances. We try mediums. We try to reach the dead. We even talk about being places where we can feel our loved ones. I mean, we don't want to accept it. But it is a separation that covers all people. It is a shroud and a sheet. And we cannot bridge that separation on our own. Yet this is not our banquet. We are not hosting this banquet. God is hosting this banquet. And there are things God can do that we cannot. And one of them is defeat death, but not just defeat death. What does it say in verse 8? He will swallow up death forever. Swallow up death. What an amazing word. The, I, have, I have pictured, you know, those nature movies where you've got this python or this boa constrictor, you know, and there's a goat. I don't know why it's always a goat. It's never a hamster. It's never something else. I tell you this. I'm in the jungle. I'm not bringing a goat. That, that is clear. But it's always a goat. And this python, this, this snake comes to, unhinges its jaw, puts it around the goat, and the goat goes in whole. Now, this isn't like a lion, you know, that kills its prey and leaves a carcass behind that can be eaten by the carrion birds or that can be decayed through natural processes. No, it's swallowed. And, and if you were to come across that area another couple hours later where this feeding took place, you'd have no idea there was ever a goat. It has been swallowed. Same with death. Death is not merely defeated. It is swallowed. There'll be no idea that death ever existed. Friends, we worship a powerful God. We worship a God that is the Lord of hosts, the omnipotent one, that when he speaks, it happens in a way that we can't even fathom. The next verse is, the next passage is so interesting. For we have this picture of this deity, of this divine being swallowing death itself, and then we read, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. The same hand that can strike death is wiping tears. We worship a loving God as well. He does not desire for a mother to mourn her son forever. He does not desire this separation to exist forever. You see, God is not death. God is life. God is the only being in whom he depends on nothing else for his life. 
He does not desire that we cry forever. It is amazing to me to think about this conquering of death. But I also have to concede that we're not the only faith that speaks to the problem of death. Other religions speak to the problem of death. So, how do we know we're right? How do we know we're not just some idea, some different way interpreting it, or some metaphor to speak about it? How do we know that what Isaiah is writing here can be trusted? Well, I'll give you one way we know. It's at the very end of this passage, at the very end of verse 8. Four words. The Lord has spoken. When the Lord speaks, it happens. He spoke creation, did he not? We are living in creation, are we not? The Lord is not like, we are told the Lord is not like man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. His ways are firm forever. When the Lord speaks, it happens. So there's one assurance right there. But we have another assurance. I can tell you quite confidently, death will be swallowed up in victory. And you know how I know that? Because death has already been defeated. Death has been defeated on the cross. Well, people are dying, Mark. Think of it this way. It's a loose, it's a dim analogy, but it sort of works, as analogies hopefully do. Remember last year, the Super Bowl? A few people probably watched it, I'm guessing here. And you had Vinatieri, the greatest kicker to ever play the game, tie ball game with the Carolina Panthers. He kicks a field goal. They win. Game over. Patriots are champs. Well, not yet. They're actually not yet champions. They've won the game. There's no way they're going to lose the game. But they're not yet champions until the trophy is given to them. Is there any way for them not to be champions? No. It's only a matter of time. It was only a few moments till they get that trophy. The same with death. It is only a matter of time till it's fully defeated. Because you see, it was defeated on the cross. Turn with me, if you would, to John eleven seventeen. I think if you're in a pew Bible, it's page 1063. John eleven seventeen. John 11 is an amazing story. It's an amazing chapter. I mean, it probably has the greatest display of miraculous powers by Jesus is in John, and only in John, which is interesting in and of itself. But we're talking about the raising of Lazarus. He is raising Lazarus from the dead. But before he actually calls Lazarus from the dead, there is an important conversation between Jesus and Lazarus' sister, Martha. Starting with verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, we know, incidentally, from verse 2, they sent people to Jesus. They knew Lazarus was sick. They wanted help. They sent people to Jesus, and he waited two days before even taking off. That can blow your mind in and of itself if you think about it too long because you're like wondering what's going on there. But he waits two days. We read on... 
down to uh, verse 20, that when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. You can just feel the tension, can you not? I mean, she, she was, you know, Lord, he would have lived. Lord, Carter might live if you would come. And she's holding on. She's grasping onto her faith at the end, but it's, it's difficult. And Jesus replies to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the res- resurrection at the last day. Martha has faith here. And you wonder if this very Isaiah passage that we're looking at today is not in the background. Martha is saying, I believe that. I believe death will be swallowed up and my brother will live again on the last day. And how does Christ respond? Does Christ say, no, 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 no. I'm talking about in the next few moments I'm about to do it. Does he say that? No. Does he say, well done, Martha. That was a great interpretation of Isaiah. No. Does he say, you know, by the way, I have the power to raise the dead, don't you know? No. What does he say? Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. I don't just have the power. I am the defeat of death. He's not just talking about what's about to happen in Lazarus. That's just a foreshadow of what's about to come. On that first Good Friday, the Son of God was nailed to a cross. On that Friday, the Messiah breathed his last and fell limp. On that Friday, a Roman sword was plunged into his side. On that Friday, the apostles mourned. On that Friday, he was clothed with the garments of the dead. On that Friday, he was laid in the ground. On that Friday, death had won. But Sunday dawned. And on that Sunday, the apostles rejoiced. On that Sunday, the garments of the dead were folded and put aside. On that Sunday... He walked out of the grave. On that Sunday, death was defeated. How do I know death will be swallowed up? It's already been beat. And we are invited to be united in Christ's death. Because you see, Christ did not have that mark of disgrace. Christ was without sin. Death could not hold him like death could hold us. And if we, in faith, believe in Him, we will share in His death. So most importantly, we will share in His life. Now what's the brass tax? What's the cash value of all this? What's the daily application? Well, the first one, quite simply, is rejoice. You want an important daily application? Praise God daily. Second application. These are words of comfort, are they not? In the late 1700s, a man by the name of Adoniram Judson was born in Wenham and then moved to Braintree in Plymouth. His father was a Congregationalist minister. And through the course of his life, 
Adoniram Judson became so convicted to share the good news of life to people who have never heard it that he decided to go to Burma. He was going to be the first foreign American missionary ever. Ever. And he set sail to go to Burma. Incidentally, he set sail as a Congregationalist. But along the way, it's a long journey to Burma. He's decided, I'll study Scripture. Very good. And through the studying of Scripture, he realized, you know what? The Baptist got it right when it comes to baptism. <laughs> so he landed a Baptist. He left a Congregationalist. But he landed a Baptist. Now, Amen. <laughs> yay our team. Now, the way to think of it, this is kind of like the Babe Ruth of you know, missionaries. So we actually get to be the, good, the winning side. On, on that end of the deal. But anyway, so he lands in Burma, and Burma is a rough place in the 1800s. Not really that cordial now, but it's really rough in the early 1800s, and he suffers some amazing tragedies. He buries three wives and many sons and daughters. He watches converts in Burma get killed and martyred, and before he himself is martyred, he keeps a diary, and it breaks because you feel the mourning but it's also laced with joy and hope. For he knows this separation is not forever. If, if you have come today and you are faced with death of a loved one, take comfort in these words. And if, if it happens for Carter or, or for you, for your family, we pray for a miracle, we desire a miracle, but if in providence death occurs... Mourn, weep. But as Paul says to Thessalonians, we do not mourn like those who have no hope. Separation is not forever. Tears will be wiped. And third, maybe you've come today and if you're honest with yourself, if you're truly honest with yourself, you know you're like Adam and Eve. You're walking dead. You know you have not experience the life in Christ. Perhaps that's even why you came. Perhaps death has happened and you just want answers to it. Amen that you are wanting answers to it. Welcome. Perhaps also you've come for another reason. Perhaps you've got other stresses in your life, other burdens in your life, and, and you just want to see if church can help. You've, you've heard on the radio, you maybe watched it on TV, you think maybe this is a place I can come to have my burdens taken care of. Friends, if you don't have the burden of death overcome, everything else is a mere mockery. Third, maybe you've sat in this pew for many weeks, upon months, upon years. Maybe you're active in the church. But you know you're walking dead. And you almost feel embarrassed or ashamed to admit that because you think people think I'm already a believer. People here will not shame you for choosing to follow Christ, regardless if you've already been here for many years. There's a banquet being held in heaven. Many of the faces here are going to be there and are going to be smiling, and they want you there. But even more, God wants you there. God wants you there so badly, He sent His Son, allowed His Son to taste death 
so that you could come to this banquet. There's an empty seat for you. Won't you fill it? Won't you come? Dear Lord, we are in awe of your greatness. We are in awe that thousands of years ago, you inspired Isaiah to tell us this message of hope. That your plans are forever and your plans have included the way for us to take away the disgrace of death and the shroud that separates us. Father, we can overcome many things, but we cannot overcome death. And you have swallowed it. And you wipe our tears. Let us walk with this message of hope. Let us know that we are living now in you. It is your holy, precious name I pray. Lord, I pray. Amen.